Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today in a sort of reversal of roles, our guest, who is a journalist, will be interviewed. He's an education reporter, NewsHour contributor, Peabody Award winner, and president and executive producer of Learning Matters. Our guest is John Marrow, author of the new book, The Influence of Teachers, Reflections on Teaching and Leadership. Welcome back to Harvard, and welcome to the show, John Merrill. Thanks very much, Matt. Pleasure to be here. It's good to have you back, and your book has been described as a tribute to teachers. What made you sit down and write this book, John? Well, there's a war going on. There's a, an education war. Uh, it, it, it's not a shooting war, but, it, but there's a real struggle um, in public education now. Uh, there are two camps. There's one group of uh, so-called reformers who say, the problem in public education is people. We need better people. There's another group, a smaller group, which says, no, the problem is with the job. It's the position. We need to improve the job. So better people, better job. Now, on the better people side, there's a, a, a lot of power. There's um, Davis Guggenheim's flawed documentary, Waiting for Superman. There's Oprah. There's Education Nation. There's Teach for America. There's uh, Joel Klein, Michelle Rhee. Awful lot of people saying, well, if we could just replace these bad teachers, everything would be fine. The better job, people say, no, teaching is, is just not a very satisfying job. And there's some evidence on their side, Matt, because about 40% of t new teachers leave within five years. That says there might be something wrong. But the problem is that to make it a better job, it's already been defined by in trade union terms, in union contracts signed by school boards, which better job is... is uh, how late can you get there in the morning? How soon can you leave after the 3 o'clock bell? How many days in advance does a principal have to ask you for permission to come watch? And so on and so forth. So that narrow trade union definition may favor teachers. It certainly doesn't help kids. So to, to redefine it, you have to t tear down that definition and have a new, better job definition. Teachers provide it when you look at the polls. They want to be able to watch each other teach. They want to develop curriculum. They want their tests to count as much as a bubble test and so on. Now, my reason for writing the book, however, uh, the, the influence of teachers, I'm a huge supporter of teachers, and the book in some ways uh, is a, a love song. But this war is irrelevant to the kids. I mean, the world has changed. You're 26? 27. 27, okay. Well, you went to school. You're the last group of kids who had to go to school because that's where they kept all the knowledge. It was in the teacher's head. It was in textbooks, encyclopedias. Not anymore. Today, it's 24-7 around us. But, so schools have to change. They are answer factories now. They need to be places where kids are helped with formulating questions, help to dig deep. You have to separate this flood of information, separate the wheat from the chaff. You, we want our kids to choose the wheat, so schools have to teach values. Second reason anyone 27 or older went to school was was a socialization. Get to know each other. Hey, today there's an app for that. There are lots of apps for that. So schools have to change there. They have to help kids understand the power of this technology that, you know, these our 14-year-olds are socializing. It's like pen pals on steroids with 14-year-olds all around the world. But those 14-year-olds might be a 40-year-old congressman trolling. And so, and kids have to learn that, um, when they go up on, on the web, put something up there, it's there forever. They, so schools need to change there. The third reason, quickly, 
was custodial care. Parents needed a place to put their kids so they could go to work. Yeah, that's still true. We still need that. But if, if schools haven't changed in the other ways, if it's just custodial care and a kind of marginal education, they become dangerous places because kids are smart. Kids have energy and intelligence. If it isn't used positively, it will be used negatively. And cyberbullying, which is child abuse by children, is on the rise. So that's the transformation we need, and that's what I argue in the influence of teachers. So those, those are the needs, and these are the changes that we need made. Who are the actors who can actually enact these changes? Well, that's a great question because uh, the president has lately been talking about teachers as nation builders, referencing South Korea. Uh, to be a builder, um, you need a bunch of things. You need the tools, you need good working conditions, and you need the time, you need the know-how, and you need a blueprint. Um, I guess I would argue that uh, teachers don't have the tools. Uh, we don't provide, most teachers spend um, about $1,000 of their own money every year on supplies for their classroom, and teachers are paid less today than they were 20 years ago. Um, do they have the working conditions? American teachers spend more time in front of the classroom than, any, than teachers in any other OECD country, um, which means they don't have time to watch each other teach, to talk to each other, to develop curriculum and all that. So those are not terrific working conditions. American teachers often are told to go teach something they haven't studied. It's called teaching out of field. That's not great working conditions. Do they have the know-how? The teaching force, it's 3.2 million public school teachers. More than One out of every 100 Americans is a public school teacher. So it's an army. Do they have the know-how? Many do. A lot of Half the teachers now have master's degrees, but they also question their own training, which makes you wonder. The last thing a builder needs, nation builder or builder of a treehouse, is a blueprint. We don't have a blueprint. We have a lot of day-to-day, -day, do this, do that, do this, but we don't have a national blueprint. That's not the teacher's fault. That's our fault. Speaking of teachers, John, you, you were a teacher at one point. Right out of college, you wrote in your book that you participated in TFA before there even was a TFA. What do you mean by that? Well, I was, I was accepted into the Peace Corps, and I was that kind of, you know, gung-ho. I went to Dartmouth. I hadn't studied teaching, but I was going to teach English. Uh, I tore my back open and had to have a spinal fusion. I ended up teaching in a high school in New York instead, wearing a brace. But I was that same kind of cocky, you know, here I am, I can make a difference. And I wasn't very good in my first year. I think I got better in my second year, but then I left. And that's, in a, uh, there's a chapter in the book called Nurse for America. And I'm a big fan uh, of Teach for America in many ways, and I, and I admire Wendy Kopp. But I also think teaching's the only profession you could do this. There is no Nurse for America. It, it's just inconceivable. And that suggests to me that we don't have enough respect for the profession itself. It's very easy to become a teacher in this country. It's very difficult to become a teacher in Norway or elementary school in South Korea. One of the things we need to do is raise that bar, in my view. One of your chapters is called Evaluating Teachers. And you write about what is right and what is wrong with some of these practices. Now, in your experiences, is this system ever going to get its act together? Yes, absolutely. Oh, no, I'm, I'm you know, wake up and say, you know, good morning, God, not good God morning. I am an optimist that, that um, the teachers, our union leaders are beginning to recognize that there is a connection between teaching and learning and that it has to, teachers, in my view, should be in the forefront of connecting those dots. So should schools of education. 
saying we need to we need to demonstrate that what we do here has an impact on how kids are learning. Um, we we clearly need better tests. We need to trust teachers more, and so we can trust their evaluations of, of students. Um, but yeah, it, it, the evaluation game is changing. The old way is a farce, so it can, can't get any worse. You also talk a lot about paying teachers in your books. Gates said that restructuring the pay structure is like kicking a beehive. You say merit pay is opening Pandora's box. How so? Well, because if you say we're going to do merit pay, then we're going to pay you, Matt, on how well your kids do. But what if I teach something that's not being tested? Well, then well, are we going to do more tests? You're going to have a test in my class, which is art, let's say, or music? I, I would personally favor... Um, a pay structure that said everybody in the school benefits when the kids go up. So you don't have to have more testing. But if you do it that way, then the, the phys ed teacher has an interest in math. And so the, when the kids go out to throw the football, some kids will be graphing for accuracy and distance. Um, the school secretary, the janitor, they'll have a vested interest in the in the well-being of those kids so that because they know that. But you also have to have good tests. You can't just have these crazy bubble tests now. But so I would not have a system that differentiates um, within a building. But if, if we know that this rising tide will lift all our boats, and a couple of you guys know that I'm not pulling my weight, I suspect I will hear from you. Either you help me or you'll help me find another job, but you won't want me dragging your pay down. Yeah, it's pure accountability. Now, John, you, you have almost 35, you have over 35 years of experience in the education field. You've seen a lot. Uh, when were you most disappointed with the state of education? And is right now with Education Nation waiting for Superman, uh, is this a time when education reform is finally getting its moment? Oh, no. I, we, the, the reform movement goes back to 1983 and the nation at risk, and um, there have been some ups and downs in there. I think I, I find these, these virulent attacks um, uh, to be particularly disappointing right now. I mean, Waiting for Superman is a seriously flawed documentary with this message that it's, it's charter schools are the solution. Well, I, I, I actually ran the meeting where charter schools were born back in 1988, and they have never turned out the way that the founders, the dreamers, wanted, but, but they aren't the, the solution, the salvation that that documentary Portrays Can you say more about what the founders and dreamers wanted about charter schools and how they've strayed? So this was 1988 at the headwaters of the Mississippi River. Um, a wonderful state senator, uh, Amber Reichcott, in the Minnesota legislature. Um, Joe Nathan, Ted Caldery, Albert Schenker was there, uh, Cy Flegel. The, the dream, Matt, was that every school district would have a charter school. It would be a, a little laboratory, and they would try stuff. And if it worked, they'd say, hey, Hey guys, this is working. That has almost never happened. In fact, the Gates Foundation now is giving money to school districts to try to get them to do that. Instead, charters became, some people said, oh, this is great, we can have our own little private school. Some people said, oh, we wanted vouchers, well, we got charters. Um, unions opposed them, school districts opposed them. Um, so, and there are some wonderful charter schools. I mean, we're doing a documentary now about charter schools in New Orleans. There's some terrific ones. But charter school is like restaurant. What does the word restaurant tell you about the food? Nothing. You have to have a meal. Same thing with charter school. It doesn't tell you a darn thing about the quality of what goes on inside. You've got to go look. John, you communicate in so many different types of ways. You're on TV. You're on the Internet. You blog. You tweet. Have you found one medium particularly effective in communicating the education message? Um, I think the pictures on radio are the best. I started at NPR, and I... 
I have such fondness for N- for NPR because radio engages people's imaginations, and so people listening will picture. You have a chance to draw the word pictures, but their imaginations. You stimulate their imaginations, um, and, and I was in radio for the first eight years, and been television ever since. I get many more letters in radio, and I think that's because the people listening will imagine what you're like. And they'll think, well, you're short and very approachable, or you're tall and thin and whatever, and they'll that, write. That's you. what they're doing right now yeah. with both of us. And they'll and they'll write you. In television, they see you and they say, oh well, you know, I don't want to write that guy, or he's too busy, or whatever. Um, so radio is, even though, of course, this is really one way, is in many respects a two-way medium. I think um, one of the things that should be happening in schools is more of what we're doing now, more production that in, that brings in a, a multimedia and in the best schools that's happening I mean he, here's a project for you for the listeners um, go with your smartphones everybody seems to have smartphones go to your street corner and map it just take pictures does it have a public trash can or not then everyone in the room in the classroom do that start comparing that day gee my my place in Park Avenue in New York there's a trash corner trash can on every corner oh out here in the South Bronx there's one then start sharing that data with everybody around the city. Map it. You're doing real work. Um, you share the data electronically, of course, and eventually you share it with the mayor and the Public Works Commission. So you start making, you, this is not make work. You're really producing information and knowledge. You're turning information into knowledge, which is what schools have to do. John, uh, from one very green journalist myself to one so respected as yourself. White-haired. <laughs> From black hair to white hair, with all of your, with all the ed reformers that are coming through Harvard and all the people that we're speaking to, leaders, policymakers, um, what is it that we should we, what is it that we should be asking them all? What is it should we that we should be holding them accountable to? What is my job as journalist, age 27, black hair, interviewing all the ed reformers coming to Harvard? Try to find out. Um and I don't think you can ask directly because there's a politically correct answer, but what you really need to know is when they look at a kid, do they ask themselves, how is that child intelligent? Or do they ask themselves, how intelligent is that child? Because if they ask the first question, how is that child intelligent, they have an entirely different worldview. They have a a view that says this kid has strengths, we're gonna build on those strengths. If they ask the other one, it's almost like a medical model. Let's find out what's wrong with this kid and we'll fix it. And what we need are the former. We need the people who say, how are you intelligent? And go and go from there. So you can't ask that directly because there's a politically correct answer, but try to find that out. And those are the people to put your dollars behind and your energy behind. For our listeners, I'm completely in awe with goosebumps. John, where can they find the book? Uh, only on Amazon only on Amazon and, and Kindle. We, we published it, we formed a little publishing company uh, because on Amazon, uh, I, I donated the royalties to my company, it's a nonprofit. so instead of getting 15% of the sale price, we get 55%. So when people buy this book, they're supporting the NewsHour, uh, they're supporting uh, Learning Matters, they, they're not supporting me. Uh, it's a pretty good read, but you'll also be making a contribution on Amazon. The name of the book, The Influence of Teachers, Reflections on Teaching and Leadership by John Mayer. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. You asked great questions. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. My name is Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.